have a lot to cover again, so we're going to get right into God's Word. We are coming to the end of our last event series. Um, next week is our scheduled to be the last installment, and we're going to talk about the second coming itself. Um, and that's something a lot of people do not understand. There are a lot of people who still think that there's going to be a secret rapture. The saints are going to be blink of an eye, disappear. And that's the way that Jesus' return will happen. And then there will be seven years of tribulation. And then you get a second shot to be saved if you miss the first one. Uh, so we're going to talk more about that next week. Um, but today, our scripture reading is Donnie, Brother Donnie read so well, came from Revelation chapter 15. I want you to go with me to verse 1. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1 says this. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. Our message for this Sabbath is entitled Armageddon and the Seven Last Plagues. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to study prophecy and last day events. Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail on the wall once again. Lord, hammer in that nail with your Holy Spirit. Hang a portrait of Jesus Christ upon that nail. Lord, I don't need to be seen or heard. These are heavy prophetic uh, materials, so we need an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I pray now, Lord, that you bind Satan, bind his demons, and cast them all far from here. Prepare our hearts and minds for these truths. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to go back to Revelation 15. I'm going to read through this chapter. We won't get too deep into this chapter, but to set the stage for the seven last plagues. Revelation 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. This is a parallel to Re Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, where the Bible says, uh, there are four angels holding back the winds of strife. A fifth angel comes and says, you cannot let go of these four winds until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Those are, these are parallel verses. You'll see there are a lot of parallel verses. This is it from the other side. Revelation 7, 1 through 3 is telling us that God is going to protect his people. But Revelation 15 and verse 1 is telling us that throughout the history of humankind, since sin entered the world, God has stored up his wrath. Why are y'all missing this thing? That means that all the times in the world when injustice has been done, when, when sin has run rampant, all the times when God has been defamed and blasphemed, all the time that wickedness has ruled, God has stored up the wrath. Revelation 15 verse 2 says this, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. Them that had gotten a victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So you switch to those who gain the victory. We're going to go back to the other group in a second. Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So you have a group. Before we get to the plagues, they've got a group that is praising God because they have made it over. What did they make it over? They made it over the mark of the beast. They made it over to Babylon. They made it over their own sinful nature. They gained victory over sin. Verse 4, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, John says, and I beheld, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And so he he pivots from these folk who are also represented in many places as the 144,000. He switches over and he looks and he sees the temple. 
and the temple is, is in heaven is open. Verse 6, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And these four beasts and the, and, the, and the four and 20 elders, they all appear at transition periods. In Revelation, one day we'll do a Revelation uh, series, but they appear when there's a big transition about to come. And here they are again, and they're speaking. Now listen, here are these golden vials. And verse 8 says this, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple to the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And this speaks to what we talked about last time, which is the close of probation. The temple is shut down. Probation has closed. Now earth is stands without a mediator. Jesus' work in the heavenly temple is done. And because of that, for the first time, man will deal with God in a way that in which mercy is not mingled in among what happens. That's a serious thing. And because the, 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 of this transition, Satan himself will go all out. His power will seem to have increased as we go into this time period when probation has closed. So let's jump to Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways. And pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And here it comes. Probation has closed. In fact, remember when probation closed? Revelation chapter 22 says, He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. It has closed. And now when it's closed, uh, from out of the temple, the, the, the charge is given. Go out, go your ways, and you can pour out the vials. And some of the questions that you look at regarding these seven last plagues are, why are they poured out? And we'll go through that in detail. Do the plagues have deeper meanings than when you just read through them? And where do they fit, or I should say, when do they fit in the prophetic timeline? When is it that they happen? So let's go back. We sh I showed you this earlier in the series. I'll show it again. This is the chronology of last day events. And you can see that we said that the end of time, we talked about this before, starts in 1798. Do you remember what happened in 1798? This is when Napoleon's general Berthier went into the Vatican as Napoleon was doing his Italian um, campaign. He was conquering the, the, the kind of city-states that existed in northern Italy. And he went and Napoleon was knocking him over. Now, here's the, the trick. Napoleon was not yet emperor when this happened. He wouldn't be crowned emperor. If, well, he, at, Napoleon is interesting. He crowned himself emperor. He actually took the, the crown from the priest and put it on his own head. Um, and he was going through North Italy, and when he got to the Vatican, he took the Pope captive, Berthier, the Roman, uh, Napoleon's general, took him captive, and they brought him back to France where he would die like a year later. This is the deadly wound that is given to the beast, the papal power that for the previous 1,260 years basically ruled the world, especially the, the, the world where the people of God were, ruled it with complete authority. And during that time, because of colonialism and the imperialism of the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, um, the British to some extent, Catholicism and the Pope's rule spread all over the world. But in 1798, with the French Revolution, and if you have not studied the French Revolution, it is mind-blowing. They tried to de-Christianize France. They went in, and this is where everything from pornography to uh, many of the things that plague the world today all were birthed out of the French Revolution. And so they switched the way the world ran from a, a predominantly monarchy-driven, which there were still monarchs, but their power, they became constitutional monarchs, and it switched over to where republics could rule. And the other country that comes up around this time, you'll remember, is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, the beast with two horns like a lamb that spake like a dragon, and that is the United States of America. And the French Revolution, which started in 1789, and the American Revolution, which they capstoned in about 1776, but it wasn't until 1798 that Western Europe recognized America 
as a free nation. Isn't that powerful? 1798, the prof- all the prophecies come in play. The papacy is brought down. And just as the, we are, it was prophesied in all those seven places where this time period exists, whether it's as 42 months or as a time of times and dividing of times or as 1,260 days, all those places, it coalesces on 1798 and that begins. That's why this is so important, the time of the end. One of the reasons this is the time of the end is also because it was these republics, even the French Revolution began to protect religious minorities. Isn't that interesting? Protestants and Jews received more rights than they had before. And of course, America was founded on the idea that the church and the state would be separated. So that began the time of the end because that was when the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation could be opened and the remnant church could be birthed. And so you can go to 1844 where the investigative judgment starts after the Millerite movement as France is is embroiled in revolution and empire and craziness. Europe gets conquered and reconquered. War rages across the European continent. The world focus is on Europe. It allows baby United, the baby Republic of the United States of America to be born and nurtured so that the Millerite movement could happen in a place of peace. Because the papacy, I do not believe, would have allowed what happened during the Millerite movement, which is the movement that called, that Jesus, that began to say that Jesus is coming soon, and that there's going to be an investigative judgment that all coalesced in what we call the Great Disappointment of 1844, which really wasn't a disappointment, it was a cleansing of the church as the church, as Jesus went into the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. So all of this is here laid out. A time of shaking, we talked about the little time of trouble, which actually is really one long time of trouble. It's a little time of trouble, the great time of trouble. But we are now today going to hit the part of the time of trouble at the close of probation that leads us all the way straight through. And you can see there that this is when you hit the seven last plagues. So the seven last plagues occur, as we just outlined by reading, after the close of probation. And so you can see next week we'll talk about the second advent. There's a lot more in here we could talk about. One thing I do want to mention as well is that there is um, a loud cry and the latter rain. This is from one of the books um, that I've been reading. Um, and you can see from the... Sorry. Um, from the, um, one of the books I'm reading on the seven last plagues. And you can see here that when you look at it, um, these, this also outlines that in the same way. Um, and you can see all of the different things. You can see the time of trouble. And you can see something that I can't wait for us to talk about next week. And that is the liberation that happens uh, at the time when Christ returns. So all of that is laid out there. So we talk about the time of trouble, the little time of trouble, great time of trouble. It's a time for the church's purification. That's the little time of trouble. We are going to go through a little time of trouble. Church, if we're not getting ready for that now, we're in trouble. Jeremiah says, if you cannot keep up with the footmen, how are you going to run with the horses? The day of the horses is coming. And I can, you can see in America, in my travels recently, just traveling to India and some other places uh, over the last few years, you can see that there is a, a movement where religion and state are unifying. You can see that across much of the Middle East. You can see that now in India. You can see that with communist China, where the governments are trying to control the churches. Here's where it gets fascinating. You're starting to hear that in America. And I've shown you that many times. And the recently elected um, Speaker of the House speaks as if he is in a pulpit rather than in a government position. This is where all of this begins to coalesce. And a Sunday law is eventually passed that triggers the little time of trouble and ends with the great time of trouble. We'll come back to that. So the great time of trouble occurs after the close of probation and happens when there's no mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. It is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. And what does that mean? It means it's the time that when, as Jacob wrestled with the angel over his past and over his sins, he wrestled with the angel. He would not let go of the angel. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And there, Jacob's name is changed. What does it signify that Jacob's name is changed during his time of trouble? It signifies that his character changed. And his name went from Jacob to Israel. Church, one of the things that God is calling for us to do is to have a change of character. To take off our character and have the character of Christ. 
Here's what a great controversy says. Page 627 says this. God's judgments will be visited upon those who are seeking to oppress and destroy his people. His long forbearance with the wicked uh, emboldens men in transgression. But their punishment is nonetheless certain and terrible because it is long delayed. Isaiah 28, 21 says, The Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work. Look at what the Bible says. His strange work and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Why does the Bible say that, that this destruction of the wicked is God's strange act? Because God is not a destroying force. He's a creating force. But God also understands that if wicked continues to exist, we would never live in a world of peace. We would never know the beauty of the world that existed before the fall in Eden. Sin has to be dealt with at some point. And it's not that God wants to destroy people, but if you're holding on to sin, you're going to be destroyed with your sin. Look at what he says. To our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you know there are a lot of people who teach differently? They teach that somehow God enjoys the death of the wicked, that somehow he's happy, and they teach another false doctrine that hell is going to burn forever. How many atheists have been created and produced because they've been told that hell fire burns forever? And people look at it and say, what kind of sadistic God would want people to suffer for all eternity for something they did in 60 or 70 years of life? God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. She says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and Nahum 1 and 3. By terrible things in righteousness, he will vindicate the authority of his downtrodden law. He will, you will not stay in your sin and be vindicated. Yeah, there are people who teach that once you're saved, you're always saved. That is a false doctrine as well. You, come, you, you know, I remember people, you coming into the church with the, the stamp from the club still on your hand and think you saved. The severity of the retribution awaiting the transgressor, transgressor may be judged by the Lord's reluctance to execute justice, the nation with which he bears long and which he will not smite until it has filled up the measure of its iniquity in God's account, will finally drink the cup of wrath unmixed with mercy. There will be no mercy. There's a lot of argument now in this thing going on in the Middle East about how much force should be used. And, you know, it's, Israel says they're, they're being careful and others say they're not being careful. Let me tell you something. God has been careful the whole time. But the day will come when mercy will be removed and it will be removed not because God simply wanted to remove it. It will be removed as well because men have rejected it. So each of the plagues has a meaning. So, if you want to understand the seven last plagues, you have to go back to the ten plagues of Egypt. We won't go too deep into this, but just like in Egypt, and in Egypt, every plague had a meaning. If you looked at each plague, they meant something. The blood, uh, the Nile turned to blood because they worshipped the Nile. The Nile was important. It was, it was looked up to. The frogs um, were, were a symbol of fertility, the god of the frogs. I won't go through all of this here, um, but each one of them had meaning. And you'll notice that in the seven last plagues, the blood, the boils, some of them come up again, as, as, as we'll see. And so you can see here that they were only, the, the Egyptian um, uh, magicians were only able to replicate the first two. And one of them they were able to replicate were the frogs. And at the end of time, symbolically, they will, rep they will replicate the frogs again. We're going to show you that, right? And it was the first three of the ten plagues that fell on both Israel and the Egyptians. So it was only the seven last plagues that only affected the Egyptians. I hope you all got that. So when you talk about the seven last plagues in Revelation, it means that, in fact, that we are living in a time when good and bad can happen to anyone, that what seems like plague can, be, can happen all over the place. But there's a seven last plagues that God's people will not suffer from. 
And those are the plagues we're talking about today. So you can see the plagues have gods and goddesses. I won't get into this too deep. The frogs in, in um, Exodus 8, 1 through 15, represented the god Haket, the goddess of birth. She had a frog head. She represented fertility, right? This is a picture of her. Isn't she stunning, right? And um, uh, they, um, so they, they would have, they would actually, women would wear little uh, amulets of carved frogs around their neck when they were pregnant in ancient Egypt to protect their child. So when this plague hit and the frogs took over and they couldn't stop them from multiplying, they realized that this God was not in control. I hope you're getting this. Every plague that struck Egypt was a blow against one of their gods. So that you have to keep in mind as you study the seven last plagues in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 2, the Bible says, And the first went, this is the first plague now, and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So the first plague is poured out on earth, and it is poured out to affect the human body, the flesh, and it is poured out on those who have followed the beast and received his mark and who worshipped his image. The seven last plagues are now a strike against the idolatry of this day. Because today men worship themselves. Hope you're getting it. And this, uh, the, the, the image that is set up is a false system of worship that has turned the world upside down where people have rejected God's seven-day Sabbath. In, instead, they worship on the first day of the week. Now, that's a tough one to push. I remember if you ever read Roger Murnau's book, A Trip into the Supernatural, he says that when he was still worshiping demons, and I won't tell you all about the book today, when he was still worshiping demons, uh, they talked about how Satan was so happy that he had convinced the world of two great lies. And a demon priest was telling this story when he was at this mansion in, in, in Montreal where they did the, um, the services. And the demon priest said, there are two great lies that Satan is so happy the world is accepted. He said, number one, the, uh, the Satan is happy that the world believes that the when you die, you don't really die. That you go straight to heaven or hell. He said, Satan loves that the world believes that. He said, two, he loves that so much of the world has rejected the seventh day of the week and worships on the first day of the week. That Sunday worship has taken over. And there was a man, Roger Murnau says in the book, sitting in the back of the room and raised his hand and said, what about the Adventists? And the demon priest chuckles. Ha, ha, ha. Well, you know, there's so few of them, I forget about them sometimes. He said, but they cannot be deceived because they keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Two great lies. And both of them are tied up in what we're talking about today. One of them is in the worshiping of the image that is set up to this beast. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. We live in a time when men trust the flesh. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I, was, I was at an event. I won't even say where I was. I was at an event, and there was a young lady. Um, you know, she, had a, she was all dolled up, you know, trying to look really attractive, and she started taking selfies. Let me tell you something. I don't know that they make cameras with enough space for all the pictures that young lady took in the space of like 20 minutes. I mean, she was just, I mean every angle, I was like, how many times do you have to see your own face? But when we lean on flesh, and you know what else it, it speaks to? Sexual sin. Because we live in a time where they say, follow your heart. You know, your heart is the seat of flesh. Follow your heart, they say. And they tell you to follow your lusts. If it feels good, do it. It's your thing, the song sings. Do what you want to do. But this is why this first plague falls on the skin, on the boils. It speaks to the fact that you cannot trust your own self. And those that do, that trust in themselves and self-righteousness, rather than in the righteousness of Christ, they receive this first one. It's not a universal plague, as, you, as you'll see. Uh, but it attacks many people. The second plague, Revelation 16, verse 3 says, The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Did y'all get that? 
Now, it doesn't say that it became blood. It says it became, um, uh, it became as the blood of a dead man, which means the blood of a dead man does what? Coagulates, which means that the sea would not, you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to traverse the sea, right? And everything in the sea died. Something significantly happens to much of the oceans of the world. And what we know here is that this one looks at the economic systems of the world, which the Bible comes back to deal with in Revelation chapter 18, that in fact, in this plague that strikes all of the money and money making is affected. Revelation 18 says this, verse 16, and saying, alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. Did you know that all the riches of the world will one day come to nothing? One day they'll, they'll take the money and throw it in the streets. It'll be meaningless. The Bible says even the elements will melt with fervent heat. I've a cousin who won a Super Bowl ring. One day, as proud as you might be of a Super Bowl ring, that ring is going to melt. And all the company and ships and sailors, as many as trade by sea, stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? You know why this one strikes? Because they said you could not buy or sell unless you had the mark of the beast. And there are people who are going to take the mark of the beast. They're going to side with the world. They're going to say, listen, I got to feed my family. I've got to take care of my own. And they're going to side with the mark of the beast for safety. And then the day will come when the economic system will collapse anyway. Revelation 16, verse 4, the next one. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Now, this one is different. It doesn't say they became as blood. They became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. Therefore they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. Some tough imagery. For they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord, God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now, this is a response to the persecution of Christians and of the saints. And I've, I've showed this, show this picture here from the, what's supposed to be like the Colosseum. I have pictures I was going to show of, of, that, of um, Tacitus' account of how Nero took the Christians uh, in early in the church history, and they would take Christians and put them up on poles, and you can see them back in the picture back here, and they would use Christians as torches. And the day will come when Christianity will be so attacked again. In fact, in parts of the world it already is. We were in India, and I can tell you there are parts of India where if you're caught, if someone converts to Christianity and says, that guy over there led me to Christ, and I was once a Hindu, and now I'm a Christian, you can get up to 10 years in prison. This one strikes back at persecution. So let's see why. Revelation 16, 7 again. And I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord God, almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And so um, to answer, the answer to the question of persecution is this plague. Revelation 6 says this. And when he had opened the fifth seal, we'll go back a little bit. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, and this is what the, the, the and this is all symbolic, but this is what the, the 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 blood of the martyr says. Remember in in the story of Cain and Abel, when God spoke to Cain, what did he say? The I, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. This is the same principle. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth?" So from the same altar. In Revelation 16, you get the answer in this plague. And verse 11 says, And white robes are given unto every one of them, and it, was, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So in Revelation chapter 6, from out of that same altar, as in Revelation 16, the voice of these martyrs comes up and says, How long, God, before you take a, a, a revenge, a, avenge our blood for what has been done to us? That's all the people through the 1260 years that died under pagan Rome, under inquisitions, under all those times, the Huguenots, and all the others that had to flee Europe for safety. 
the Waldenses, all of those people. And when the time of the end in 1798 comes and the altar and this voice comes out of the altar and says, wait a minute, you'll be avenged, but you got to wait because it's going to happen again. And after it has happened to your brothers and sisters, after it's happened in the future, then after it's fulfilled, will we come back and deal with it? And that's what this plague is all about. Revelation 16 and verse 8 says this. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. The sun becomes the next plague. Now notice it's not striking the earth anymore. Now the the plagues are hitting the sky. Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat. And look at what they do when they're scorched with great heat. They blaspheme the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Have you ever been somewhere where there's severe heat? Now, I, you know, I go to the Caribbean and it's hot, but it's more humid than hot. It's not really hot. It's hot, but it's not, it's hot. It's not like scorching hot. Scorching hot is when you go to California and New Mexico and Arizona and you wind up out in the desert by accident or something. And you now you realize what the sun can actually do. I lived in a place called Bakersfield and they named that place right because you bake. I'm telling you, in the summertime, it would get up to 120 degrees, basically no humidity. Um, um, in Death Valley, so it gets so hot that sometimes it gets up into 130-something degrees Fahrenheit. I know people in other parts of the world, listen, I have no idea what that is in centigrade, but it gets up over 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And if a bird comes out from under the shade and flies, they drop dead, it's so hot. Let me tell you something. This plague says, It will be worse than that. Men will be scorched with heat. Why attack the sun? Why does this plague fall the way it does? Why? Because the sun has been worshipped, going all the way back to Egypt, right? Even to this day, people worship Ra. To this day, I mean, even some of the rappers, you know, they have the third eye. They talk about their third eye and they show, and a lot of them have tattoos and imagery. And they don't realize that when you mark yourself with the images of these false gods, you give demons power. This is why the scripture in Leviticus actually says that you are not to tattoo yourself. You're not supposed to mark yourself for the dead. Because when you do this, you give power to these spirits, to these demons. That's why as Christians in general, we shouldn't have tattoos. Now, if you already got them, it's all good. Don't worry about it. We can take them off or you can leave them on. God can God controls things. But we don't go and look for these things because we don't want these symbols on ourselves. And it's not just the sun worship of, of Egypt, which is literally the seed that leads to Babylon. It's the Egyptian gods become the Babylonian gods, become the Persian gods, become the Greek gods, become the Roman gods, all the way to today. It follows all the way through. Sun worship. It's not a coincidence that the day that the devil chose for the world to worship is Sunday. And even it's creeping into the church. This is yoga, um, sun worship. I remember I was working out when I lived in Pasadena and I was early one Sunday morning and I saw the yoga instructor. She was out on the balcony of the gym and she's hitting all these crazy poses. And I I said, man, this is interesting. So when she came inside, I said, I said, let me just ask you straight. I said, when you do yoga, are you worshiping the sun? She said, absolutely. And you can see they have all the different sun salutations. If you've not seen Ivan Raj's stuff on on yoga, um, um, unboxed, go online and find it and watch it. It will blow your mind because here's what's crazy. There are people who are bringing this stuff into the church. There are churches that have yoga sessions. But ultimately, the sun worship did get into the church. And this is why you see saints with halos. There's nowhere in the Bible anybody has a halo, right? There's no halos in the Bible. And you can see the statue of of St. Peter, who was actually Zeus, down here in the bottom right corner, the halo behind this Catholic image of of Christ, the way that this is Pope John Paul II bows before the sun here. This sun worship creeped all the way in. And now the worship is on the venerable day of the sun. But this plague takes the sun and makes it a source of torment. It was never to be worshipped. In fact, when God created the world, he did not create the sun first, did he? He created light and created the sun three days later. Think about that for a second. You can't worship the sun as the source of light because God created light before he created the sun. 
That was the proof that you're not supposed to. Even in, in modern folklore, Superman, how Superman get his powers? From the sun. And here's what the Bible says. Joel 1, 19 and 20 says this. O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burnt all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And even with all of that, they do not repent. They blaspheme. And where does this come from? So when they blaspheme, it's a significant thing. Because here's the difference. When the people of God go through the time of trouble, the little time of trouble, into the great time of trouble, divided by the, by the close of probation, the people of God humble themselves, they repent, and they give up sin to become more like Christ. The process, the agony of the time of trouble does that. But when the enemy's folk are chastised, they do not repent. Instead, they blaspheme. When the, on, when the whole universe, looking at all that is happening, sees this going on, the entire universe begins to understand that Satan was wrong from the beginning. Revelation 13, so you can tie back this blasphemy. Verse 1, Revelation 13, 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. They blasphemed because they came from blasphemy. And it was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 42 months. That's that 1260-year period that ends in 1798. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. In the Bible, there are two ways that blasphemy is described. One of them is when the Pharisees get mad at Jesus because he says to the, to the um, sick, um, your sins be forgiven. They say, wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God? You blaspheme. So let me ask you something. When you go into a confessional and sit down and ask the priest to forgive you of your sin, can that priest forgive your sin? Do you need a priest to forgive your sin? It's blasphemy. Or when one says, I sit in the place of God. That is also blasphemy. All of that falls on this first beast of Revelation 13 so that you know exactly who that beast is. Verse 7 says, and it was given unto him, Revelation 13, 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, that 1260 years. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They blaspheme because their name's not written in the book of life. Church, let me tell you something. You got to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And what I love about the books, and you study those books, is that there's a book of works and there's the book of life. And whatever dirt you've done in your life, whatever sin you've committed is in the book of works. But guess what? The blood of Jesus Christ blots out your sin. In fact, it blots it out so well that when you stand before God, it is as if you have never sinned. You want your name written in the book of life and your sins blotted out of the book of works. Here we get to the crux of the matter. Revelation 16, 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And there's a lot of discussion about this nowadays. People have no idea what this means. And there's a lot of speculation, as I'll show you, about what's going on. Verse 13 says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Where did we see frogs before? In Egypt. Right? It was a symbol of fertility. Do you know what the Euphrates means? Like the river of fertility? Why? Because it's, it multiplies, it multiplies. And out of these unclean spirits, uh, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of what? The great day of the battle of God Almighty. So here these frogs go out, these spirits go out to gather the world to a battle with God. And then John the Revelator puts this verse in here. These are the words of Jesus. 
Revelation 16, 15. He says, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his what? And they see his shame. So here it's, you know, they're talking about this battle and everybody's being gathered. He said, but Jesus said, listen, I'm coming again. And a lot of folk are not going to be prepared, just like they're not prepared when thieves come. Revelation 16, 16 says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So here you go. So you have the river Euphrates drying up. You have um, uh, um, the battle of Armageddon happening. And you switch from very literal plagues, right? Like the, 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 the boils, the sea turning to blood, the, the rivers turning to blood, to very symbolic now. So it changes. Revelation 16, 12 says this. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. So let's talk about that for a second. And the water thereof was dried up, and the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, there are a lot of people who say, well, the river Euphrates is literally being dried up. It must be the end of the world. Is that what's happening? Well, it's not happening because the river's dried up. This river's drying up because there's not enough rain. It's not the prophecy. The prophecy runs much deeper. And if you look at it, Revelation 17 and verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. So the river Euphrates is water. Whatever city this is, it sits on many waters. Right? So what does the waters mean? And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Prophetically and symbolically, the river Euphrates drying up means that the people who supported Babylon begin to turn on her. Her support begins to dry up. And why is that necessary? Before Jesus comes to make the way for the kings of the east, which Jesus comes from the east, he's the king that comes from the east, and we're going to go a little deeper than that in a second, that support begins to dry up. People realize after the close of probation, people begin to realize they've been duped. I've met people who were into Luciferianism. And they will tell you that when you, when you go into Luciferianism, you begin to worship the devil. And a lot of the entertainment world, this is literally what they're into. They're promised all these riches and glory on earth and they get it. I mean, you, you know, you can, you can look at how a lot of these folk live. Look at how some of them start out Christian. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and look at how they change and the music and the videos and everything gets dark. Witchcraft and spiritualism creeps in and then rich and rich, uh, wealth and fame are its byproduct. What Lucifer tells his followers, and Roger Minot says this in his book as well, is that God is too merciful, too just to ever actually destroy the world. And he tells his followers that he will get the world back. In fact, this is why the Rolling Stones and Guns N' Roses have songs called Sympathy for the Devil. That is a Luciferian doctrine that teaches that, in fact, Lucifer was the victim. It plays out in Marvel's Thor. Oh, y'all missing this thing. It plays out in Marvel's Thor that Loki, the bad guy, stays in heaven with Odin, but Thor is the one cast to earth. Who in the Bible gets cast to earth? Lucifer, and Lucifer is the villain. Is Thor the villain? Thor is the hero. All of that is Luciferian doctrine you're being in, 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 uh, indoctrinated with. You don't even realize it. You're watching these movies and they're twisting your understanding of right and wrong. There's a reason it's called Marvel. All the world marveled after the beast. So what happened? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, King Belshazzar... Um, was in there in having a party in the book of Daniel and Cyrus, King Cyrus and his uncle Darius, they figured out a way to divert the water. You see that water, the water ran right through the city of Babylon. They diverted the water, dried up the Euphrates. That's why Babylon was invincible. They had a constant supply. You couldn't really siege them because this river constantly brought in not just water, but I'm sure you could fish in the city as well. So they had a way to survive. You'd stay out there forever. The Persians were smart, and they diverted the water 
dried up the Euphrates, and they marched there. And the, the, the Euphrates at its deepest point today is like 32 feet deep. So they were able to march their army through the river under the wall of Babylon, came up while they were there getting drunk and having a good time, getting crunk, and they came in there and killed them all and took the kingdom. Isn't it interesting? Daniel survived the whole thing. But when you read in Revelation that they dried up the river Euphrates in Revelation 16 for them to make the way for the kings of the east, Cyrus, and I won't get into this today, but he's a type of Christ. Not that Cyrus was Christian, but when I say a type, it means that he symbolized some of what Christ would do later. How did he do that? Well, Cyrus is the one who gave the Jews the decree that they could go back to Jerusalem and do what? And rebuild the temple. It was Cyrus that did that. And so Cyrus is a type of Christ. So when you read this, if you are a Jew in the time of John the Revelator, you understand that what he's writing about is that Christ the Messiah, in fact, Cyrus even has meaning in Hebrew like uh, that means like the Messiah, it, that it, the Christ the Messiah is going to come back from the east and he's going to destroy Babylon just like they did. That's what it's speaking to. But the waters also represent persecution. You can see here when it, when it says here in, the, in Revelation 12, 15, and the serpent cast out of his mouth, water is a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. The drying up of the Euphrates means that also the other thing that happens as this plague starts to fall is that the persecution of the saints begins to dry up. And that is when Jesus comes and redeems. But the next one is the interesting one. Revelation 16, 13 says this. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, as a review, who are these three? Well, the first one is the beast. That's, you find that in Revelation 13, the first part of the chapter. This is the papacy. The second one is the mouth of the, uh, the first one is the dragon, sorry. The dragon is Satan, but it also represents spiritualism. Paganism, the obia, the voodoo of the whole world, the belief in multiple gods and animism and ancestor worship, all of which has infiltrated our society again. Out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And who's the false prophet? The false prophet is the second half of Revelation 13. The second beast with two horns like a lamb, a spake as a dragon. And I'll just sum it up quick to say it is fallen Protestantism, apostate Protestantism. It is, when you look at that second half of Revelation 13, the evangelical, ecumenical movement in the world now where the churches are not uh, doctrinally correct, but they're emotionally strong. And these false doctrines are fully accepted. What ties all three together? A belief that when you die, you don't die. In all three, you can be visited by a ghost. That ties them all together. Revelation 16, 14 says, For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And I was talking to someone recently, they're like, well, if somebody comes and they do this thing and they do this miracle, how am I going to not believe? Let me tell you something. In the last days, miracles are one of the ways that the people are going to be deceived. And I'm telling you, if you live in some countries, you know, you can't trust the supernatural. You already know that. If you come from some places, you know that they, people could do all kinds of stuff, make stuff float, and do all kinds of craziness. But there are phases of the battle. The battle of Armageddon is a religious battle, hence this idea of unclean spirits like frogs. It is a battle between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, between truth and error, between God's law and man's law, between modern Israel, spiritual Israel, and modern Babylon. There's a military phase when the death decree is passed, we talked about earlier, to keep the people of God uh, from keeping the law. And that's Revelation 13, 15. Revelation 13, 14 says, And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had a wound by a sword and did live. And look at here, he says, verse 15, and he, Revelation 13, 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be what? Should be killed. This is the death decree we talk about. It happens after the close of probation if you do not bow to the image of the beast. The image of the beast is the establishment of a false system of worship. And one of the key signs 
is the rejection of the seventh day Sabbath of, of, um, uh, of Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20 of the Ten Commandments. It is a rejection of that and a replacement with another day to worship. Something the Bible does not sanction. But Revelation 16 says it like this. Verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I want you to understand, and this will be our next series that will start after this one. This is a battle about righteousness by faith. Hence, in 1888, all of Adventism focused on this. This was the great debate, righteousness by faith. The real battle of Armageddon is happening in your heart and in your mind. The real battle is will you give over this world? Will you give away its propensities? Will you submit yourself to God? And will you be saved by the righteousness of Christ? Because you can't save yourself. The real battle of Armageddon is already happening in you. Isaiah says it like this, Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What has he covered me with? His robe of righteousness. This is why when the prodigal son gets back home, the first thing his father does, he says, listen, go and get the best robe. Who do you think the best robe in the house belonged to? The father. It was his own robe. Why did he want his son to wear his robe? He did not want anyone to see his son in that filthy condition. Let me tell you something. Christianity is beautiful. It's different in all other religions because only in Christianity are you allowed to wear the righteousness of your God. Every other religion says you got to work for it. You got to figure it out. You got to reach the hit the five pillars. You got to reach nirvana. You got to go and do a penance. All the other religions make you pay for your salvation. Christianity, it is a free gift. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. No man can put on the robes of Christ's righteousness till he takes, until he has taken off his own. Have you taken off your robe? Are you still wearing your pride? You're still wearing your selfishness, still wearing all the things that pertain to you. Are you ready to take it off and put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? It means there's a lot that we have to give up, change what we listen to, what we watch. It means we have to empty ourselves of self and allow Christ to fill us, the Holy Spirit to work in us. Revelation 16, 16 says this. And he gathered them together unto a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Take a couple minutes and explain this and we'll be done. Etymology of Armageddon. Armageddon appears only once in the Greek New Testament in Revelation 16, 16. The word is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Har Megiddo. Har means a mountain or range of hills. This is a shortened form of Harar, meaning to, uh, to loom up a mountain. Megiddo refers to a fortification made by King Ahab that dominated the plain. It is it name means place of crowd. So you'll see that what Armageddon actually means, if you go to Adam Clark wrote in his Bible commentary back in 1817, that the original of this word has been variously formed and variously translated. It is the mount of the assembly. Are you getting that? Armageddon is hard. Are the, the mount, Megiddo is the congregation. It is the mount of the congregation. Now, Megiddo also was a physical place. It's, it was an important town in ancient Palestine overlooking the plain of Estrelon. Um, the Valley of Jezreel is about 18 miles southeast of, of Haifa in northern Israel. Uh, Megiddo's strategic location at the crossing of two military and trade routes. Um, it controlled a commonly used pass between Egypt and Mesopotamia. Um, this is where um, Josiah actually disobeyed God and went and died. It was Megiddo, right? So it means the hill of Megiddo. But Armageddon means it speaks to this exact actual place. In 609... <clears throat> B.C., this is the battle that was mentioned, and, and actually, I put the hieroglyphics back there. It shows you that it isn't just the Bible that speaks about this battle where Josiah died. The Egyptians were so proud, they went back to Egypt and put it in their 
uh, put it in their um, in their hieroglyphics in Upper Egypt in Tutmos's temple. So Megiddo meant something special. So if you were in a Jew in the time of John the Revelator, when he was writing the book of Revelation, it meant a lot when it said that this is the battle of Armageddon. This is where the, one of the last great righteous kings disobeyed and went and died. Where Satan triumphed as it looked, he was going to wipe out the messianic line. So here God is saying, I want a rematch. We're going to go back to the mount of the congregation. We're going to go back there. Why? Because this is what Satan wants to conquer. He wants to be the one uh, at Armageddon. He looks to take the place of God. He wants to win the mountain and take over. It says in Isaiah chapter 14, in verse 12, speaking of Lucifer, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. There it is. He'll sit above the mount of the congregation. That is like Armageddon. The sides of the north. And Solomon's temple was on the north side of the mount. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And this is what Satan wants. He says, I will be like the most high. Some people ask why. If probation is closed, why God does God bother with seven last plagues? If probation is closed, why does Satan care what happens? This is, there's a few things working and happening. One of them is, this is Satan's chance to be fully worshipped. From the beginning, that's what Satan wanted. After probation closes, he seizes and jumps on the opportunity. He calls through the un three unclean spirits like frogs, the whole world together in a final move of ecumenicalism to, cre to create a congregation, a mount of people that he can climb. And all of them will worship Satan and he gets what he wants finally. But also he gets a chance to try and persecute God's people. He pours out terrible trial in the great tribulation, trying to break them so they will break the law of God, so they will renounce what they believe, so he can go back to God and tell them, look, I won. But when God's people do not move during the time after the close of probation, when they stay steadfast because they've been sealed with the living God, Ellen White says, it is a seal that no man can see. It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. When God's people do not move, despite the fact that, it is, that, that Satan has unmitted power to come after them. This is one of the reasons, in the end, why the whole universe looks at this world and says, finally, nope, God was right. He was able to create a people who could keep his law even in the worst of conditions. God was right. Satan only ever wanted to rule and conquer, and he's destroyed this earth in the process. So in the final, final analysis, this is why in the final analysis, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Satan, don't miss this. Even he, after this exercise, will finally submit and say, true and righteous are your ways, O God. Isaiah 14, 13, the mount of the congregation, the mount of the assembly. Lucifer is represented as aspiring to replace God as Israel's sovereign ruler. That's really what he's about. But Isaiah 13, 9 and 10 says this. About this sixth plague, we'll deal with the seventh plague next week. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Verse 11 of Isaiah 13 says, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Verse 12, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. When these plagues fall, the earth itself will move. But the Bible says, God is going to have people who are like gold. Verse 12, they have been tried in fire and purified, like it says in Revelation 3 when it speaks of Laodicea. They have bought from God the trials that purify. 
So that in Joel 3, 16 and 17, it can say this, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope. Look at that. But the Lord will be the hope of his children and the strength of the children of Israel. Let me tell you something, church. You've got something to hope. No matter how bad the world gets, as we go through these last day events, even after the close of probation, we have the hope of God for his people. We will be safe and protected. In fact, after the close of probation, none of God's people will die. Verse 17. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no stranger pass through her anymore. When that new Jerusalem comes down, God will claim forever his mountain. Never again will strangers, meaning that never again will sin rise up again in this world. Let me tell you something. If you've been through something, if you know the sufferings of this life, you know that it will take for God to change this world over. That's why he says, I make a new heaven and a new earth. And when I look at the conditions of this world, uh, uh, it, it is such a terrible, difficult place to be. I was dealing with someone addicted to drugs just this week. Can't shake drugs and kept, you know, it's like a cycle. They, they seem like they're going to come out of it and then they don't. And with, with every iteration, it, they, they wind up worse off than the time before. I'm speaking to this person in love because it's someone I'm very close to, someone I love very much. Watch them go through all of the different sequences. It started when they lost someone very close to them. Actually watched their brother die. In a horrible accident. And, and, and ever since, this person has not been able to put their life back together. Watch them come down and just not be able to, to make things work. And, they, and they're all messed up in the head. And, and every time they try and get right, they sometimes try and walk with God. But somehow they trip up over their old selves. They fall back into the same old crowd. And they wind up right where they are. Back in drugs. told that person the problem is even though you try to reach out to God at times you have not fully accepted what it is God can actually do for you and it's not that God takes away the urges right away it's not that he takes away the addiction right away but he changes the mind so that you start to see the hope that is in Christ It is the hope of salvation. And I'm telling you, the world is going to try and addict you to the drugs of all the things that numb us. It's not just crack and fentanyl and, 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 and opiates that do it. It is the lore of the world that does it. The lore of its riches and fame, of a lascivious lifestyle, a wild life. All those things adore, uh, uh, draw you. And every cycle you go through, you fall lower and lower. But I am telling you that if you are willing to accept that God has something better for you than the devil does. Do not believe him. The mountain he's building, Armageddon that he's building, is a false congregation. It will not last. But what God has for you will last forever. He loves you so much, he died for you. And in that act... He lived a perfect life. When Christmas comes every year, I celebrate. I celebrate the idea that God himself came and was wrapped in the flesh of a baby. Lived a perfect life, died on the cross so that I now have access to eternity. All the plagues will come. All the times of trouble will come. But no one can take away from you what Christ has already done for you. The question today is, Will you accept it? And if you want to accept it, I just want to ask you to stand with me now. And we'll pray that we be ready for what is about to come upon the earth. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this um, message, the, the, the message of the first six plagues, Lord. That in each one of them we so see, Lord, that you are thinking of us. Lord, even those that have been persecuted and put to death for their faith, Lord, even that is addressed here. Lord, nothing has happened to us that you have not seen.
No terrible things have happened in our lives that you have not experienced with us. Lord, every pain, every hurt, every tear we have shed, Lord, you've cried along with us. Father God, today I ask that you bless your people, that we would look differently at this world. Stop hoping in the world and put our hope in Christ Jesus. Father God, when probation closes, we want to be on the side that has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, sealed in our foreheads, unmovable in what we believe, that one day we will look for your appearing. Father God, we would receive a crown of righteousness. This is our prayer today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.